0: If you're a regular here, you know this is kind of the moment where usually uh, Dave or myself insert some kind of story to kind of hook you and get your attention and try to make you laugh. And unfortunately tonight, I don't have a story. I'm sorry. Some of you are real disappointed. That's like your favorite part of the sermon, and sorry to let you down tonight. I don't have a story. Uh, We're going to start off just by jumping in and and reading uh, a passage out of Ephesians. And I'm just going to tell you up front, like... The place that I felt God kind of led me to, to start our time together was not really where I wanted to. In fact, it, it feels kind of counterintuitive to how you would want to start a sermon, because the reality is I know that we're just going to get a few minutes into this, and there's a good chance I'm going to lose some of you, uh, because we're going to read some things, and I'm probably going to say some things that, that don't feel that great. And what I would ask, what I would ask is that, man, if, if, if you're tempted to check out, if you're tempted to kind of just look another way or get your phone out or whatever or leave, man, I would just ask, would you just just stay with me. Stay with me because it's going to feel like on the front end something that doesn't sound like that great of news, but I promise you we are going to get to what we call the gospel, which literally means good news. We're going to get there. So just stay with me as we read. Let's jump in to Ephesians. We're going to start in verse 1 of Ephesians 2. This is the Apostle Paul uh, writing to first century Christians kind of all over the province of Asia, And uh, this is what he writes, he says, "'As for you, you were dead in your transgressions, you were dead in your sins, those which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, in those who are disobedient.'" I know that language is kind of weird. Basically what Paul is saying is, hey, there are forces at work in the world around us that we cannot see or understand. That's a whole other sermon just in and of itself. Let's keep moving, verse three. He says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. This is the word of the Lord out of Ephesians 2. Nothing like ending our first scripture with the word wrath. Just what everybody wants to come to church to hear about is God's wrath. But, you know, seriously, what is happening here in this moment? The Apostle Paul is writing to Christians and he, he's basically talking about who they used to be. And he says, Hey, who you used to be before Jesus is that you were deserving of God's wrath. And I'm like, Man, I read that. And I'm like, Paul, don't you know that some people who are not yet Christians are going to read this? Because basically, what you're saying to them is, Hey, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you deserve God's wrath. And it's like, we read that and we go, Ah, oh, Paul, where's your tact? Come on, get your act together. And so many times we're tempted to write Paul off as just kind of the angry apostle because he says stuff like this. But if we want to wrestle with why Paul would talk about the wrath of God, we have to go to Jesus himself and try to figure out, was there something to what Paul was trying to accomplish when he wrote this letter? Why in the world does he start by drawing our attention to the broken nature of humanity that deserves God's wrath? You know, this week, I wasn't planning on teaching out of the text I'm about to t- have you turn to, but I read it this week, and man, God just like grabbed my attention, because I'd never really seen how it flowed the way that it did. I was reading in the Gospel of John chapter 12, you can go in and turn there, John chapter 12, if you have an orange Bible, that's page 735, we'll have the words on the screen as well here in a minute, but I remember I, I'm reading that. I'm reading that and I'm going, man, Jesus, I've never really noticed the way these words flow one into the other. And so in the Gospel of John, Jesus is teaching to a crowd and he starts in verse 47. And this one verse is a verse that, man, we love. Like, listen to this verse, John 12, 47. Jesus says, if anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Man, that that verse... Like, we just want to put a hard stop on that verse, right? It's like, yes, Jesus. Like, Jesus came not to judge, but to save. Jesus says, if I don't do the things he said, he doesn't judge me. He actually came to save me so I don't have to be judged. And it's like, yes, give me a tattoo of that verse. Put it on a coffee mug. Like, I'm ready to go with Christianity. Yay, Jesus. Like, it's, it's that kind of verse, right? We love it. We love that Jesus. The, the problem is, is that, that is, those are the words Jesus said, but he didn't stop right there. He said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. But then he keeps going. Look at verse 48. But there is a judge. For the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the very words I have spoken will condemn them at that last day. For I do not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say everything I've spoken. He says, I know that his command leads to eternal life. I love this. Jesus says, listen, I know I've said some hard things, but here's what I know. It's from the Father, and it leads to eternal life. He says, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. So these are the words of Jesus out of John chapter 12. And so, you know, we pause and we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, so Paul talks about wrath. Jesus? Jesus said that there's a judge in anyone who does not obey his teachings, who does not do what he says that they will be condemned at the last day by his father, the judge? Man, this feels like heavy, like heavy. it's just weighty, right? And some of you, I, I know maybe I've already lost you a, a little bit, okay, and so stay with me. I think I'm gonna find some common ground for us because here's the reality. This talk of God being the judge, of God judging us, it doesn't feel that great, but I think there's something in every single one of our hearts that actually longs for there to be some kind of judge, not necessarily for us, but for the world around us, right? All of us see the evil, the brokenness, and the wickedness in the world. And if there's anything good in us, which there's good in all of us, we crave justice for it, right? When we see something evil that is done, we're like, man, who in the world will deliver justice for this atrocious act? This is why, I don't know if you remember, but I'll never forget the time they caught Osama bin Laden. You guys remember this? Like I remember watching on national television, like our entire nation is like news anchors. Everyone's like celebrating Osama bin Laden is dead. Osama bin Laden, why in the world were people freaking out so much about a guy that had been killed? It was because he, he, it was his fault that thousands of people lost their lives in our entire nation. The only thing that we knew to do with that was that this guy had to go down. This felt like justice, and so we became the judge. And it seemed like the judge was saying, this is the right thing. And when we saw justice or what we perceived to be justice delivered, we celebrated it, right? Right? It's like, why in the world do we get so excited when you hear that ISIS is getting squashed? It's like, oh, evil in the world. Yes, we need a judge to deal with evil in the world. Every kind of like, catastrophic like, like evil event across the history of the world, when you look at it, we see it and we go, man, I hope there's some kind of judge that can deal with that kind of problem. We look at Nazi Holocaust you know, and what Adolf Hitler did or you look at uh, the genocides that you see all across history and we go, man, there's got to be a judge that's big enough. And so we all long for there to be Our entire legal system is built around the idea that there needs to be someone with some kind of wisdom and discernment to administer justice when wrong is done. The place that we have a problem with judgment is when it feels like the judgment gets turned back on us because we begin to question, well, well, who gets to set the standard for that? Who gets to set the standard by which I will be judged? And what Jesus says in John chapter 12 is really clear. He says, listen, anyone who does not obey my words, those words will be used to judge you in the last day. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying there is a measuring staff for what is good and what is acceptable before the great judge. And that measuring rod, that measuring staff are the words of Jesus. You see, here's one of the things, we're in this series called Rooted, right? This idea of how do we live deeply in the middle of a world that is so hurried and always changing? You see, I don't know if you've noticed this before, but the culture around us is always going to move the yardstick on what is good and what is acceptable and what it takes to be a good person. That what our culture says was right 10 years ago, now it's called wrong. And that which was called wrong is now called right. It's like it all keeps getting switched around. And Jesus says, no, there is a trustworthy measuring stick, a standard by which we will all be held. And he says, it is my words because my father gave me the words. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the words of Jesus, but if you've never read his teachings, I encourage you sometime this week, go read Matthew chapter five through seven. You know, if it sounds harsh, this idea that we all stand condemned, if it sounds harsh, this idea that we all deserve wrath, man, you read Matthew 5 through 7, it's like, man, it is like looking in a mirror, having a microscope on your own heart. It starts off really beautiful, all the Jesus stuff that we love, right? Jesus is going, man, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. And we're like, yeah, Jesus, blessings, come on. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. But then you get a little bit further in the teaching, And Jesus says, hey, hey, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. He says, but actually I tell you, don't even be angry in your heart. (laughs) He says, anyone who says to someone you fool is actually in danger of the fires of hell. (sighs) What, Jesus said that? Yeah. He keeps going and he says, hey, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. He says, actually, I tell you, don't even have lustful thoughts in your heart. It's like, oh man, Jesus, really like my heart? He says, hey, you've heard that it was said that you should should love your neighbors and and hate your enemies. Jesus says, no, 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 I tell you, you should love your enemies and pray for those who do evil against you and persecute you. And we go, wait a minute, what, Jesus? See, Jesus keeps going. He says, listen, the thing that you will be judged by is not just your outward behaviors, but it is as though your very heart itself will be opened up and laid before God Almighty, the, the, the final judge and every motive, every thought, everything will be laid bare before him. And Jesus says, my words, these are the measuring stick. And I'm like, here's the thing, this idea that there will be a judgment day, we hate it. We hate it because we all know inherently we don't want anybody else to hold us to a standard that we haven't tried to hold ourselves to. But Jesus says, my words, my words will be the measuring stick. And I think if any of us are really honest with ourselves, the idea of having your heart laid out for everyone else to see is pretty terrifying. But this is not where the story ends. Jesus says, hey, there is a judge. Paul says, hey, we're all deserving of wrath, but here's what you need to know. And if I've lost you, then just listen to this. Listen, God's heart is not bent on wrath. God's heart is not bent on condemnation. This is not the thing that he longs for, for you, for me, or for anyone else. So we flip back over to Ephesians chapter two where we left off. The apostle Paul will continue writing. He says, by the, like the rest, we were by nature deserving wrath. And then he goes to verse four. He says, but because of his great love for us God who is rich in mercy man I don't know about you if I have to stand before a judge I'm really hoping that that judge is full of mercy and full of love he says God because of his great love who's rich in mercy he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions it is by grace that you have been saved I don't know if you've ever seen something that's dead There's not a whole lot it can do for itself. This is a little too much information. I had to clean out my barn yesterday. Yeah, we have a barn, and I found like dead mice in the barn. You know, it's so gross. I'm sitting there looking at these dead mice, and here's the thing that's something that is dead. It can do nothing for itself. It's helpless, lifeless, hopeless. And what the apostle Paul says, he says, listen, while you were dead in your transgressions, dead in your sins, God made us alive. And then listen to this phrase, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. This word grace just keeps coming up. It keeps coming up. He says, this grace is expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Verse eight again, for it is by what? It is by what? It is by grace. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And listen to this, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul hits it over and over and over again. He says, guys, listen, you were deserving of wrath, but God in his good grace, it's by grace that you have been saved. As we talk about being rooted, what we're talking about tonight is this idea of we become rooted when we become propelled by the grace of God. But one of the issues is is that this word grace, it's this word that we use so much in American Christianity that we've almost just completely forgot about the, the magnitude, the bigness of what God's grace is really about. We've boiled it down to, hey, you want to say grace before the meal? You know, we have all these little things. We, we sing the songs, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, but we just sing it all. And it's like, does it ever really sink in how amazing this grace really is? Does it ever sink in that I actually am a wretch before God Almighty, and yet he is full of grace for me? I think, I think oftentimes we end up missing the bigness of grace because we've misunderstood it. I see this all the time in conversations um, with, with, with people that are talking about God's grace. I hear them talk, and I see these signs that show me that they've misunderstood, that I often misunderstand. And one of the first things I, I hear is that, is that I, I can tell they've misunderstood it because they've, just, they've cheapened God's grace. Like this cheap toy that you can buy at the dollar store, That when it breaks, you just go back and get another one. Or sometimes I can tell that I've misunderstood grace, I can tell that I've misunderstood it when I keep trying to earn the good stuff from God. I keep trying to tell myself that it's my place to get these things. I keep trying to earn it. I can tell when we've misunderstood grace, when we just disregard it, or when we try to qualify it. And we try to say, well, this person could qualify for God's grace because they're pretty good. But man, this person, they're too far gone. Whatever person you think is the epitome of evil, sometimes we're tempted to go, I don't know. I don't know if God's grace can really help that person. And whenever we start thinking that way, We have misunderstood God's grace. Why is it so easy for us to misunderstand or to miss the bigness of God's grace? I think there's several things in our culture that are at work against us. You know, the definition of grace uh, for the Christian is this, something that is, it's a free, unmerited, unearned favor of God. That, that picture that Jesus paints where one day we'll all stand before the judge and Paul says that we were deserving of wrath in this moment where you're standing before the judge and he gives you free, unearned, unmerited favor. He smiles upon you. It's free. But you know, there's these th- this, this force at work in our culture where we kind of tend to think that anything is free has to come with a trick there's gotta be a catch. <laughs> like, we're just programmed to think that if somebody offers you something for free, and, and unless you're completely naive <laughs> and you've just never been tricked before, when somebody offers you something for free, you kinda go, eh, I don't know. You know, earlier this year, I, I got a Kindle to read books on, and. I kept seeing all these ads for Kindle Unlimited where it says, hey, access all these books for free, you know, unlimited books, you don't have to pay for them, you get them. So I start looking into it and it's like, sure enough, well, you gotta pay $10 a month. So it's not entirely free, you know, pay $10 a month. But then I get this email and the email says, hey, try out, free trial, free trial of of Kindle Unlimited. You know, just sign up right here for three months, you get Kindle Unlimited, all the books you can read absolutely free. And of course, I go to sign up, and what's one of the first thing they ask of me but my credit card number? And I'm like, wait a minute. If it's free, why do you need my credit card number? But we all know the catch, right? It's a trick. It's a free trial to hook you, to get you in, and then they put it back on you when you forget to cancel it, like I did last week, and it showed up on my credit card statement, $10 to Amazon. I got duped. Like, I fell for the trick. See, our culture has trained us to think that anything that is offered as free always has a catch, there's always a trick. And sometimes this is the way we end up looking at God's grace. We think, oh yeah, 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 God says grace is free, salvation is free, but the trick, the catch is all the obedience stuff. Yeah, he'll get you in by offering you free salvation, but then after that, you gotta be really good. You gotta do all the right things. You gotta jump through all the hoops. But guys, what this shows is that, man, we have missed the bigness of God's grace. We have confused God's grace with God's forgiveness. So you have to think of it as like this giant umbrella, and the umbrella is God's grace. And every single good gift that God offers falls underneath that umbrella. Forgiveness is a piece of God's grace, but it is not the totality of his grace. When we think that it is, we think that grace is simply about that moment that we get saved. It's this transaction where suddenly what was bad suddenly is made good, and it feels like we're getting duped into a life of having to jump through hoops for God because we've confused, we've minimized the bigness of his grace. But no, grace is not simply about forgiveness. Grace is about all the freedom that God longs to offer you. You see, it's not a transaction to get forgiveness. I love Paul will continue to talk about grace in Titus Chapter 2, and we can get these words on the screen here as well. In Titus 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That same kind of language. Jesus has come to extend grace of salvation. But look what verse 12 says. It doesn't stop with salvation. He says, This grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He goes on in a later verse here to talk about, you know, as, this, as this grace continues to work in you, you actually become a person that is eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good, can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you actually got to a place where when you woke up in the morning, it wasn't like, oh man, hope I can be good enough for God today. hope I can do all the stuff that he expects me. But instead you wake up going, man, I can't wait to see what good things God has for me to do for others today. What if that was the natural posture of, you, of your heart? You see, the only way we get there is by the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God working itself out in our lives. You see, your transformation as a follower of Jesus, as a person that actually embodies the fruits of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of that is a free gift that God gives you that you cannot earn. It's unmerited, unearned. He goes, man, I wanna, I wanna change you. I wanna grow you. Grace is not about a transaction for forgiveness. It is about training, being taught over and over again how to live into the full character of Jesus, who you are meant to be. Now, this doesn't always look the way that we think it will. I had this moment um, On our trip to India that I was on, I know this is the third time I've preached since I've been back in every sermon. I think I've talked about India. Sorry to be that guy. It's just kind of what happens when you go on mission trips, you know. So uh, there was this moment on my trip to India where God got my attention about the bigness of his grace. It happened about halfway or three quarters of the way through our trip. uh, You know, we were there with a team of about eight of us, and there were some moments where there were some tensions on the team or some disagreements about how things should be handled, and I I felt some disagreement with a person on the team. And instead of doing the Christ-like godly thing and going to that person and talking to them, I kept my mouth shut and kept it in here. And then I went back to my hotel room that night. And my roommate was Will Schinnick, our our regular worship pastor. And man, I just started talking to him about it. And I just straight up gossiped about this other person. It's a person you all know. It's Jana Og, our our missions pastor. I start talking bad about her to Will Schinnick behind her back. And I bring him into it. And I go to sleep that night and let the sun go down on how I'm feeling. I wake up in the morning, I'm kind of angsty and I can't figure out why, but I go through the day. I don't do anything. I see Jana, I don't talk to her, I don't address it. Then I go through another day. And the third day after that, I get up and I open my Bible. I'm trying to spend time with God and I just feel all this angst. And I'm like, God, why do I feel a lack of peace? Is it because I'm scared of going home? Is it, you know, what is it? And God just gives me this phrase. I'm sitting there trying to listen to him and all he says to me, I hear this weird phrase. He says, Choice morsels. <laughs> It's a really weird phrase. I'm like, what in the world is that, God? Why are you giving me I write it down in my journal, choice morsels. Like, why did that pop into my head? I have no, and, and I started going, wait, I think I've heard that before somewhere. So I get on my phone, and I Google choice morsels, and I realize it's actually a proverb in the Old Testament that says the words of a gossip are like choice morsels that go down into their innermost being. And God said, Aaron, are you paying attention? He you're carrying something that is preventing you from living out the character of Jesus. He convicted me in that moment of a sin, and I, I started weeping as I'm like writing in my journal. I'm like, God, I'm sorry, I know I've sinned. And he's like, okay, what are you gonna do about it? What are you gonna do about it? And so I had to go to Will, and I had to confess to Will. I said, Will, I'm sorry, I, I sinned against you and against Jana. I said, I gossiped about her in a way that wasn't honoring. And I was like, God, I'm sorry that I dragged you in on it. I almost passed my bitterness onto you. And then I had to go to Jana and I had to say, Jana, hey, I'm, I'm sorry, I sinned against you, my sister. I was like, I gossiped about you behind your back and I told her what I said. And I said, I'm really sorry, will you forgive me? And she forgave me, you know, we had this amazing, this amazing moment of, of reconciliation and forgiveness between the three of us. But, but here's the thing, it's like, why am I talking about conviction of sin in a sermon that's all about grace? Because sometimes the grace of God, the free gift of God for your transformation will not look the way that you think it does. So often I hear people get convicted of sin and they go, oh, but that can't be God because he's got grace. I don't know where we get that from. The conviction of sin that keeps you from living into the glory and goodness that you were intended for is a gift from God because he longs to pull it out of your life to make you more like Jesus. You see, the the, the grace of God is huge. Every good gift, whether it's a conviction of sin, Whether it's a talent or an ability, or whether it's forgiveness, or whether it's your salvation, or whether it's hearing the voice of God, whether it's somebody else encouraging you, every single gift comes from God and it falls under the umbrella of that which was unearned and unmerited and it's part of God's good grace. And he longs to give it to you. He loves to shower us with grace. It's just his character. It's who he is. He looks at us, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved even a wretch like me that would gossip about my friend. <sighs> His grace is so good. You see, it's not, just, it's not just that we fall into the trap of thinking that anything that's free has a trick. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking anything that's free has to be cheap or somehow less quality. You know, I don't know if you've ever had a friend that like, went to school to be a hairdresser or a stylist, you know, and before they start school, they've never cut anybody's hair. And then suddenly they've got a try on someone. It's <laughs> so like, hey, I'll give you a free haircut. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you've never cut anyone's hair before. No idea how this is going to turn out, but it's free. I'll take you up on it. You know, I've gotten some really bad haircuts in my day because I'm cheap. And I'll take the free thing over having to pay money almost every time. But what we believe is that something that is free is somehow cheap or less quality. And we think that it must not cost very much, you know. but here's the thing. The grace of God is not cheap. There's this amazing illustration of this kind of played out in our nation earlier this year. I don't know if any of you heard this story or saw it on your news feed or anything, but there was this moment um, at the uh, 2019 graduation from Morehouse College. All the graduates are gathered around, and uh, the guy that was giving the speech at their graduation was a man named Robert F. Smith, who's this very wealthy investor, and as he's getting ready to wrap up his speech to all these students that are about to graduate and walk away from college, he lets them know, he says, hey... He says, Hey, I, I believe in you and I don't want you to walk out of here with any debt on your shoulders. He says, so, my family and I are starting a grant where we are going to pay off every single one of your student loans. And you can imagine, like, every student's like, Yeah! When they freak out, they start cheering. Why? Why? Because they felt the weight of their own indebtedness. They had become indebted. They'd become indebted. And there was this one story of a young man they interviewed. NPR interviewed him after the graduation. He's like just celebrating, you know. And they're like, "How did that make you feel in that moment?" He's like, "I just couldn't believe that my jaw dropped open." He said, "I have eighty thousand dollars in debt that's in my name and my mother's name. That's going to be riding on her shoulders and on my shoulders." He goes, "I can't even fathom the bigness of this gift. I had my debt lifted for free. He paid nothing. He paid nothing." Free does not equal cheap, though. Robert F. Smith that day picked up a $40 million tab, $40 million to pay off all of that debt. You see, guys, the grace of God, the grace he longs to give us, it is not cheap. We look at Titus 2, verse 13 and 14 again. We put those words back up here from Titus 2. You see, the price that God paid It says that you know we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself. He gave Himself. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us. Guys, we were we were by by nature deserving of wrath, standing condemned. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus comes in. He says, hey, listen, the heart of my father is not that you would be condemned. The heart of my father is that you would be redeemed. But my God, our father is just. He's a good judge. And Jesus says, I will take the debt. I'll pay it. I'll lift it off your shoulders. I will suffer and die on a cross. I'll I'll absorb it all into myself. Just like Robert F. Smith absorbed $40 million into himself, Jesus absorbs all of the punishment for all of humanity on himself at the cross. You didn't earn it. I didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. He gave it freely because it's the gift of grace. You see, grace that is free it's not a trick, there's no catch. It's not cheap, it costs, it costs all of heaven's resources. But there's this other force that sometimes causes us to misunderstand grace. And uh, I've heard this captured in several different metaphors and this week I was reading and, uh, and particularly there was a teacher named Taryn Williams that captured this so beautifully. Taryn Williams was telling his story to a group of students one time and he, and he said, you know, I was really close to walking away from Christianity. He said, I I, I was kind of done with it because I felt like, just like every other religion, he was just trying to give me a ladder to climb. He said, my perception of religion was this, that every religion was simply a ladder that I had to climb in order to have some kind of spiritual realization, breakthrough, finding God, whatever you want to call it. He talked about his travels. He said, I traveled to Thailand, and I met with Buddhist monks, and I met some really wonderful Buddhists, but what I realized is they just kept trying to give me a ladder, Their ladder was the noble eightfold path. If you will walk the eightfold path, then you can find spiritual enlightenment. It was a ladder that I had to climb by my effort and energy to get there. He says, I traveled to Indonesia, which many people don't know is the most populous Muslim nation in the world. He says, I go to Indonesia and I meet with all these Muslims and they're some of them really wonderful people. And he says, but all they had to offer me was a ladder. And the ladder was this, listen, if, if you will walk by the five pillars of Islam, if you will pray at the right time, if you will fast the right time of year, if you will read your Quran, if you will do all that it requires, then you can get to the top of the ladder and maybe one day meet Allah. He said, they were giving me another ladder that I had to climb. He said, I went to India, I met with Hindus, and I talked and I realized, although there's lots of expressions of Hinduism, all of them had this in common, go to the right temples at the right time, make the right sacrifices to the right God, live by the law of karma that says, if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you better watch out. Once again, he said, it was just another ladder that they gave me to climb. He is even the version of Christianity that was held out to me. I was taught, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers. Be a nice person and don't sin. And then you can make your way to God. He said, even the version of Christianity I was given looked like a ladder that I had to climb. And he said, and here's the thing that I realized. He said, in all these faiths that I looked at, all these different ladders that were held out to me, he said, I realized that in all of those, some of those people were really good ladder climbers. There was always people that really knew how to climb the ladder. Some of you in here are really good ladder climbers. Nothing wrong with that. Man, I know it's part of my story. Like I grew up in the church. I was a great ladder climber. Like I knew how to follow all the rules. I knew how to look like the good kid. But man, there's something happening in my heart that was not good. He says, what I noticed about all the good ladder climbers is that they had a lot of confidence, what I would call pride, but very little humility. They would look down lower on the ladder and wonder why everybody else couldn't keep up and do all the things they were doing. But what Taryn Williams realized, he said, I started looking and he said, although there were some that were good at climbing ladders, I realized, man, I am not a good ladder climber. He said, I'm not good at it. He said, no matter which ladder I tried to climb, I always felt like I fell flat on my face at the bottom, crumpled up and feeling hopeless that I'll never be able to get any higher than the second rung. He said he was ready to walk away from all religion, from all faith, and then he read this verse, Ephesians chapter two. Verses eight and nine, let's put that on the screen one more time. He read these verses, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And even this, listen, even this faith is not yours. (laughs) Did you know that even your faith is part of God's grace to you? (laughs) that he gives us the the propensity to be able to have faith. He says, this grace, this faith is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one could boast. You see, this idea of finding God by climbing a ladder, it stirs in us, this spirit of competition. And in America, man, we value, it's like we say, hey, if you want something good, you gotta pick yourself up by your what? By your bootstraps, you pick yourself up. I walked in a room the other day, my kids were watching a a television program and somebody on the show said, hey, God helps those who help themselves. I'm like, where do we get that? Where do we get this way of thinking? But in that kind of thinking, it breeds competition. Because man, if I'm a good ladder climber, I can feel like I'm holier than the person below me. But so many of us So many of us have tried climbing the ladder and we just keep sliding down and we go, why in the world can't I be as holy or as good as so-and-so? Why can't I be as close to God as so-and-so? And And it breeds competition. And this verse says, no, listen, all of us are on a level playing field. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is though we deserved wrath because we're incapable of climbing the ladder well enough. Jesus says, I'm coming down the ladder. God says, I'm coming to you. No other faith in the history of the world says that we start at the bottom of the ladder and that God meets us there without any requirements, without any good behavior. I've talked to so many people that are close to giving their lives to Jesus and they say, yeah, I wonder, I'm almost there. I'm close. I wonder when I think I might be there. And I'm like, no, don't you know right now where you are? This is where Jesus meets you. Right where you are tonight, right where you are, Jesus longs to meet you because of the richness of his grace. He loves you immensely, and there's nothing you can do to earn it. You just receive it. It's humiliating to those of us who want to climb really well, and man, it is so uplifting to those who have fallen on their face over and over again. The radical grace of God Almighty expressed to us through Jesus. Guys, this is the grace of God, it's bigger. I, I, I love it. Paul says, the unimaginable, the unsearchable riches of God's grace, it's bigger. It's more unending than you could ever imagine. And tonight, we're, we're gonna come, like every week, like we always do, we're gonna come to the table of grace, right, we say that every week, as we come to the table of grace. God never runs out of it, and, and for some of us, all of us are in need of God's grace in some form or another. So what I want to invite us to as we come to the table, as you get the bread, as you get the cup, I've got just two simple questions for you to think about, pray about, share with one another. The first question is this, how, how have you misunderstood grace? Have you boiled it down to being too small? Have you cheapened it by thinking that you could just keep living however you wanted and just keep coming back as though grace is like a cheap toy that you keep buying over and over again at the Dollar Tree? How have you misunderstood God's grace? Think about it. Let the Lord speak to you. Share it with one another. And the second question is, where are you in need of God's grace? Because as you come to the table, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, we come to meet with Jesus. He's here. He's here with us. And as you take the bread, as you take the cup, it's this reminder that he came all the way down the ladder just to find us right where we are and redeem us in the eyes of God, our Father, the good judge. So I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna send us to communion. I encourage you, like, get in a group, share with one another. Uh, If you need prayers or wanna pray with somebody else, we'll have some folks at the Respond Banner and we'd love to pray with you. Uh, let's, Let's pray together right now. Lord, man, how vast, Lord, how vast is your grace? How limitless, how patient are you with us? Lord, forgive us for the places that we've cheapened your grace or pretend like you were some kind of con artist trying to bait and switch us. God, I pray tonight, even as we commune, Lord Jesus at the table, would you speak to us? That is your grace. Would you speak to us of your character, of your goodness, of the bigness of your grace, and everything that falls under that, your mercy, your gifts, your forgiveness, your salvation, uh, every good friends, good friendships, good jobs, all the things that we have, every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father above. And all of it is free. It is your, your rat- lavish grace. So Lord, speak to us tonight. As we commune with you, Jesus, would you speak to us? Remind us of your grace. We love you. It's in your name I pray, amen.